This is our last service for our first year. And we thought that we would end it with a question and answer service. Questions and answers part three. I don't know what the paper said, but usually it says uh, that uh, Hugh Prather will give long answers to short questions from the audience. (laughs) (coughs) So we'll keep with that tradition. Uh, Possibly you've wondered why Gail hasn't been here the last couple of Sundays. She's having morning sickness, which is a... (laughs) (laughs) Dr. Sham got uh, pneumonia recently, and uh, I said, uh, Dr. Sham, I I knew that you didn't want to go see the Grand Canyon, but I didn't realize that you would go to these lengths to get get out of the trip. Is it true that you've had pneumonia? He said, yes, I've had pneumonia, and I've really enjoyed it. (laughs) He said, I always enjoy my illnesses. <laughs> so morning sickness is that kind of... Uh, we're, we're real happy about it. <laughs> so I'd like to invite you to ask any question. I'd like to remind you of what I have before, and that is that if you can ask a question from your heart, it will be helpful to many, many people. People who listen to these tapes and people who are here today. And if you can make it as personal as possible, then generally it has a much broader application. So as best you can, you might stay away from strictly intellectual questions. And to get us started, uh, maybe it would be a good idea if I were to tell you of a few mistakes that I believe I've made in the way I have worded some things this past year. So I know that there have been a few statements I've made that have raised questions. If I had worded these things a little more gently, they probably wouldn't have. So let me speak on a couple of subjects very briefly, and then we'll have other questions. I began one talk a number of Sundays ago with this sentence. There is no God in the world. And that upset some people. Although I, that was not the last sentence I said, I went on to list all the atrocities that take place in this world. All the cruelties. And to point out that there is no God in the world in that sense. Of course, God is everywhere. Course in Miracles has a lesson that says, God is in everything you see because God is in your mind. But it also has a lesson that states, the world I see holds nothing that I want. Now, if you were to put those two statements side by side, it might appear as if there's a contradiction. The world I see holds nothing that I want, and God is in everything I see, because God is in my mind. There is no deep difficulty in understanding these two statements. They address themselves to two entirely different facts. The first fact is, there is no reality in an hallucination. There is no love in cruelty. There is no rest in pain. 
There is no kindness in sacrifice. There is no love in depression. But love is there, even though the person is so depressed they can't even rise from their bed. Even because they're so depressed that they sit on a floor in some ward and rock back and forth. Still love is there. Love is even there in that figure that rocks back and forth on the floor. So lonely, so isolated, so cut off. And we have a beautiful example here in Santa Fe because there are these seas of mist, especially this time of year, that, that come and settle over the mountains and settle at the base of the mountains. And they move back and forth. And we can see the splendor of the mountains through the mist. And so what we see appears to combine two things, both the beauty and the mist. And that's all there is to the statement that God is both in the world and there is no God in the world. It depends on whether or not our vision takes us a little bit beyond the mist. If it does, then indeed we can say there's God in what we see because we are seeing with more than just our body's eyes. Our body's eyes shows us this figure that rocks back and forth on the floor. No one comes to visit. Everyone is given up. But our heart shows us that a friend waits beside. Waits for this very, very unhappy person to change his mind. To open his heart. And to be happy once again. In the passage that Cher read from. It speaks of the bird with the broken wing. And then later it talks of the bird beginning to sing. It's very interesting that it does not say that the bird's wing must first be healed. And even as the lonely figure rocks back and forth, it can begin to feel a gentleness within its heart, a warmness that surrounds it. And this is why people can appear to be on a very, very flat course. And yet when they surface from this flatness, they have made enormous progress. And so we should judge no one. We should assume nothing about anyone. And although we've talked much here about levels of progress, it truly does not matter what someone's level of learning is at the moment, because with just one insight, a thousand years can be left over. 10,000 years can be collapsed with just one insight. And we do not know when that insight will come upon anyone. And so we should hold no one where we think they are. I knew I should have written these down. I don't remember what the second <laughs> one was. <laughs> there was a second one that uh, caused some difficulty. And uh, I'll think of it. And maybe we'll talk about it at the end of the service. <laughs> so let me invite you at this time, if you have anything you'd like to bring up, please do so. If you would like to just 
say a word or a phrase, if you if you are a little embarrassed and you and you don't wish to ask a long question, uh, just say adolescence or whatever it is. <laughs> <laughs> do that. Uh, so you cover your mouth and stay where you are. No one will know that you said it. <laughs> so that will constitute our service today. Is any questions you'd like to bring up as to what we have covered in the in the last year or anything new that you'd like to uh, like for me to talk for a minute about? A question concerning clarification of what A Course in Miracles means by magic. I'd be happy to, and of course that was the very thing that I had forgotten. <laughs> I had addressed that subject on a couple of occasions, and using a phrase that I find is misused quite widely, it's a good phrase, and it's a accurate, truthful phrase, and that is that we create our own reality. But the way in which I find it being used uh, across the country uh, is inaccurate because it implies that we have caused the circumstances that surround us and that we can characterize in advance what those circumstances are. So recently I talked about a woman who has, was told to go out and for four hours to create her own reality. And as I told you, she saw a man fall from a roof, she saw a cat run over, she saw someone else being... The good humor man lost his humor. <laughs> <laughs> so to say that she somehow caused this is extremely scary. It scares people to to interpret that phrase in that manner. Because what Jesus and the many other people who have walked so gently through this world have shown is that there are two ways of going through the world. One is to walk on water. One is to pass through the world so gently and so kindly and so peacefully that we add no disturbance to what is obviously a disturbed dream. The world is in immense pain. and We cannot deny this. The fact that possibly a third of the world is starving to death is just one of many, many things that could be talked about as to the form that the, that the world's pain takes. And so you have Mother Teresa walking through unbelievable scenes of misery. Picking people up and having bones drop out of their body, even though they're still alive. Now, it is not helpful to say that Mother Teresa caused that. That if she were more, if she were further along, that she would not have seen a person who was so disintegrated that the bones would have fallen out of their body, or that the fact that she picked them up and the bone fell out as she picked them up, that she caused this. If she had been further along, the bone wouldn't have fallen out. This is, of course, crazy. 
Now, the way that we usually go through this world, all of us, in fact, are still going through the world to some degree in this manner is, we go through it like a whirlwind. Now, the dust is already there, and our whirlwind merely picks up the dust and swirls it around. So we, in fact, cooperate with the misery of our brother and our sister. We are part of the problem. We do not unilaterally afflict our brother and our sister, but we do cooperate in the misery. We do not walk on water. We kick at it and splash at it and fall down in it and throw mud in it and so forth. And in that sense, we create our own reality. So possibly everyone in this room has at one time in their life created a turmoil in that sense in their relationships. So we've all gone through a period in which we ran off our friends in great numbers. We can look back now and see that. There was a time in which we were so angry and we were so disturbed that we can remember having lots of accidents getting sick, the place that we, where we live being a mess, our finances being a mess. But we can look back at that time and see that it was our disturbance that caused our own financial difficulties. But to say that, our, that the sales go down in our little store because the market is depressed, that this is creating our own reality is a wholly different level and is not accurate. The person who is at peace can allow the general economy to slump and allow the business in their store to slump and still be happy and at peace. And they will still have enough money to put food on the table and so forth. They will be unaffected by the wave or by the trough, because this is simply waves and troughs, and we we're not going to change that. Now, the concept of magic is that by studying God, by studying truth, by studying scripture, we can learn some, certain divine principles and go around like some <coughs> sort of magician manipulating the world, manipulating other people. And as we've talked about so often here, there is, of course, a stage in which we can do that. But there are very, very few people on the face of the earth who can do that. And generally speaking, it is not as easy to heal as most people would lead you to believe. It just isn't as easy to do. Of course, there are healings, but oftentimes people don't understand why the healing came about in one case and not in another. All of your prominent healing, uh, healers have said this. I've talked to several of them, and they do not know whether or not they're going to heal this person or they're not going to heal this person. Now, Jesus was at a state in which he could heal someone regardless of whether or not, regardless of their mental consent. He did not do as much healing as most people like to think. If you look very carefully at the scriptures, there were not a great number of healings. 
Mary Baker Eddy started out doing a lot of healing. She was someone who had the gift of healing. But for the latter part of her life, she stopped healing. As I have told you that other, as I've cited other healers who've, who've done this. And the reason that people do this, even if they suddenly <coughs> find that they have a gift, one of the most common ones is precognition. Now this is something that probably many of you know someone who is precognitive and stopped telling people what was going to happen. Because the person thought that the, that the individual who was telling them what was going to happen was somehow causing it. It was like a witch or something that was putting a spell. And many people who have the ability to be precognitive will stop talking about it because it is of no help. It is an ego trick. And this is what is not often understood, that the dream as it's set up is a dream of limitation. It's a dream of self-imposed limitation. And so we dream that we do not communicate with other people, that the only way we can communicate is by opening our <coughs> mouth or by writing something on a piece of paper, and that we do not know what's going on in the heart of another person. This is a self-imposed limitation. You take this off, and suddenly you've got many terms for what happens as that particular limitation. See, I told you this is going to be a long, see, long yeah. answer. <laughs> as, as you take this off, then you've got terms like, uh, well, depending on what your background is, if, you're, if you have a fundamentalist background, then you use gifts of the Spirit, and you can talk about prophecy and discerning of spirits and... Uh, healing and so forth like that. If your background is through parapsychology, you might talk about mental telepathy and psychokinesis and all the things, they all mean the same thing. But as the, as the term, as the, as the limitation drops away, then of course, well, suddenly we know what is going on in the heart of this other person. This does not come from God. This is, this is like what we did as a child in which we would wrap ourselves in a rope and pretend that we were tied up and say, help, help. <laughs> and uh, our, our playmate didn't want to play the game. The playmate got bored with the game and so forth. And so we just, of course, took the rope off. <laughs> That's what goes on. And this can be very misleading because it's unusual, because it's flashy, these, these uh, gifts of precognition, seeing auras, uh, healing, many, many of the, many of these kinds of things can be, and all, of course, many of the things that happen during meditation, like out of the body experiences. This does not come from God. This is this is not either pro God or against God. It is a phenomenon of the world. It is a phenomenon of the collective ego. The collective ego can do many, many things, but it does it all within a its own little dream of limitation. So it imposes limitations, and then, as it wishes, it takes limitations off, and this is supposed to prove something. It proves really nothing. Now, of course, in Miracle says that as you lay aside any limitation, this can be used by the Holy Spirit. This can be used kindly, can be used by love. And so the statement that, that, that is very prevalent in the overall Christian movement, that these phenomena come from Satan is also equally absurd. 
And I've seen, uh, I saw a person once, a very uh, kind uh, person who could heal, denounced by another Christian who said that healing had been withdrawn from the world and that this was obviously Satan working through her because there was no healing in the world. All we need to do is to see that God is one. God is peace. God is love. God is absolute. God is a great quietness and a joy so great we haven't experienced even the shadow of it yet. But we do get little glimpses of it. God is one thing. The ego dotes on change, loves change. It doesn't care what kind of change. And so one of the realms of change is the throwing off of self-imposed limitations. And suddenly we find, because we've got, we got bored with the limitation. That's all that happened. He said, I don't think I'm going to mess with uh, not being able to know what's in another person's heart. And so this, this is not a conscious decision. It's a heart decision. This is not something you can go out and decide. And so people who teach magic <coughs> imply that by reading a book and doing a certain exercise, you can throw off your limitation. Now, every once in a while, you can do this a little bit, but not as consistently as it's implied. And what's the point of it? You could have devoted that time to walking home instead of having, uh, instead of being Superwoman or uh, Spider-Man or something, you know. There's, there's no, we don't have to walk like gods. We don't have to have special uh, abilities. And so as these abilities fall away in our walk toward God, we don't talk about them. We don't let people know this is happening. We use them if we see we can use it kindly, just as we would use an automobile, because we see we can use the automobile kindly. But anything that can be used in two ways, and precognition, out-of-the-body experiences, changing the form of another body, and so forth, can be used in more than one way. And if that's the case, it does not come from God. So A Course in Miracles merely uses the term magic for all the ego's talents. And it uses the term miracle for what is natural. What is not pre-decided but is not consciously controlled. So we do not walk through the world deciding what body needs to be healed. That implies that so-and-so has a healthy body and so-and-so has a sick body. It's the thought that there's a body, that, that we're in a body, that we're in this cage, this decaying cage. Very frightening that that's all we are, this very intense identification that we have with this body. And every little change that it goes through scares us. And suddenly we've seen something in the mirror that we hadn't seen before. And this can preoccupy us for days. There's been this change in our body. To make this a really long answer, <laughs> let me tell you about one obvious change that you have seen in me physically. <laughs> 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 
you have watched me lose 50 pounds in the last several months. All right. Now, I don't know what you thought. Everybody thought something different. Uh, but I'd like to tell you about this because uh, I was not about to go on a diet uh, after having spent most of my life maintaining my weight. And I've told you about all the stuff I went through, about all the running I had to do every day and all the calcinics. I won't go through all the calorie counting and so forth. So I finally got tired of that and uh, blossomed. <laughs> or as they say in the metaphysical movement, I became a larger transmitter. There's <laughs> always two ways of looking at anything. You see. <clears throat> now, you heard me talk about how it's so important that we look at every aspect of our life and be peaceful, that we eat the foods that are peaceful, that we wear the clothes that are peaceful, that we have the things around us in our house that are peaceful, that we have relationships that are peaceful, and that as we do this, our, our, our mind is less fearful, and that fear is the only law. Here's another way of thinking about it, because it's, this is maybe a third thing that I said that was I probably shouldn't have said in this way. I said that there are no natural laws, and I had that little tinge of guilt when I said that, because it's, it's one of those statements that's not helpful to say in that way. Here's a more helpful way of looking at it, is that to think of that maybe there is this mass of law out there, but it does not, you do, you do not invoke it until you are afraid. So it's like you cooperate with the flu bug by being afraid. You cooperate with whatever it is, the calories, by being afraid. Now, it would be hopeless for you to try to look at everything that possibly could hurt you, and this is why we get in such a state of terror, especially at this particular time. We're looking at everything. I heard a man the other night... Boy, this is really a long answer, isn't it? I heard a man the other night talking about radiation. And he had studied about it. And he was talking about it coming from microwaves and, and uh, from word processors and from so forth. And, and by the time he'd gotten through, because he knew a great deal about the subject, he said, did you realize that everything in this world is composed of radiation? That everything is a wave? And that we're receiving radiation from everything? <laughs> well, that's exactly the state we've gotten ourselves into. You see, we're scanning everything now. We're trying to blame everything for what's going on in our life. And so this is why you have this proliferation of suits against everyone. Uh, someone's baby doesn't turn out to be just like they want it to be. And so they go back and they try to figure out what they ate or where they were and they sue the people. Or they have an accident. and they sue. So there's this, there's this sort of mania of blaming through the courts. And we're blaming all of our food. And we're blaming our clothes. And we're blaming what's been put in the clothes, we're blaming the air, we're blaming the water, we're blaming the ground. Do you remember the, uh, the, the conventioner's disease or something? For a long time, it was, it was something that was in dirt that was causing it. Now, it's, now they think it's something else. But you see, what we? how can you walk in peace if every single thing can kill you? <laughs> Anything can kill you at any moment. We'd have to be on guard, and, and we've gotten ourselves in this kind of state. Now, it is, of course, possible to take every one of those things and fight your way through it and all this business, but the simple way 
is to start with peace inside you and have the peace grow so it's like an umbrella that surrounds you. It's like a case of crystal that encompasses you. But it's, it's a crystal that lets in living things so you can put your arms around them so that you can visit the child uh, whose, whose immunity system has been lowered as uh, Jerry Jampolsky has shown. This, this, this actually may, from a scientific standpoint, give the child uh, a little longer to live, a little less likelihood of dying, if, it, if the child can have its friends, even though its, its immune system is totally depressed and it might get a cold from any of these kids. But you isolate the child, can't visit any of its friends, and something goes on. Now, if we start with the peace and we let the peace expand and we, we concentrate on the peace and we concentrate on having it grow and we do what we need to do so the peace can grow, then, of course, the fear is automatically taken care of. You cannot be scared and peaceful at the same time. So as you walk through peace, then the so-called laws, the natural laws of human relationships, cannot be evoked against you. The natural laws of so-called natural laws of health, of action, and so forth. There's a general diminishing of all the things that seem to assault you. But they will still go on. There will still be one company that will, uh, well, one country that will bomb another country, and there will be someone like Mother Teresa who will come in and help. So the opposite of magic is peace. <laughs> The question concerning the validity and meaning of devoting one's life to service in a meaningless world. Good. I'm so glad you asked that question. Um, we talked last time about how the world is a disturbed dream because the dreamer is disturbed. This is why it serves no purpose for you to devote all your time going around to saving the world because it, it will just return. It's a disturbed dream. When the dreamer is no longer disturbed, the dreamer will stop dreaming. That's what will happen. The world will end in laughter, says A Course in Miracles. That's all it's going to do. It's just going to gently evaporate. We'll have no more use for uh, all this misery. Now, what you do then is that you help the dreamer, not the dream. This is the mistake we're making in the spiritual movement to a very large extent. We're trying to help the dream instead of the dreamer. So this is like, once again, sitting on the side of the bed. Now you've become intuitive enough to enter the dreamer's dream. So here's your child, and your child's having a nightmare. And let's say your child is an adolescent who doesn't want you in there. All right. But anyway, <laughs> but anyway let's say that it's a very bad nightmare and so forth, and, you're and you feel very peaceful about helping, so you sit on the... Uh, bed, side of the bed, beside your adolescent. Now let's say you have become intuitive enough that you can discern the dream. What do you do? Do you go in and try to manipulate the dream? No, because the dreamer is disturbed and it will just go right back. What you do and what every parent does, even though they don't have the, the intuition to know what the dream is, 
they might be able to figure out little pieces of it because the child says something or because of the movements of the body or something. But that they pay no attention to that. That is not a great concern. They don't try to take notes on this, what, what jerky <coughs> movements and what. Why? Because the parent automatically knows. No book has to teach a parent this, that it is the child that must be cared for. And so what does the parent do? Sits quietly and gently pats the child, puts its hand on the child's forehead, and maybe says, it's all right, everything's all right. Very, very quietly, not to shock it out of the dream and so forth, but just gently raise it from the dream. So as servants, we do that. We serve what is real in the other person. We forget our tinkering with their lives and our tinkering with their relationships and devote ourselves to their happiness. We devote ourselves to the dreamer and not the dream. And there is no more lovely concept in the world than that of being a servant because the magnificence that will flow into your heart when you do this just for a few minutes. Uh, in one book, I talked about a stage that I went through in my life in which I made a list of all the things that I wanted to do. wanted to learn Latin. I can remember that was one of them. Uh, I wanted to spend a certain amount of time painting, a certain amount of time sculpting, a certain amount of time doing exercise and so forth, all this stuff. And that there wasn't enough time in the day to do this, so I, I decided that what I would do is redefine the word day. And because uh, I had these things I wanted to do and, and I could do them in eight hours, but they never got done. So I just said, well, a day will be when I get these things done. Then I will declare a new day and start on the list again. So it might take two solar days or three solar days, but that's when I got through the list. Now, tucked in there was one 30 minute little period in which I, I thought I was going to practice being a saint <laughs> for 30 minutes. This is one of the things I thought might be nice to learn to do <laughs> and so what I had to do during that 30 minutes is I had to do something for someone else without their knowing about it that's what, that's what a servant does a servant quietly goes about helping another person and asks not for acknowledgement or gratitude but just do it and those of you who read that particular book, uh, There's a Place Where You're Not Alone, know that what I then did was I, I discovered this, this buoyancy and this uh, peace that flowed from just that 30 minutes, this warmness that came. And that's what happens when we, when we are a servant. So Mother Teresa didn't go to save the world. She went back to Calcutta, kept picking up bodies and putting them in and sitting by people's beds while they died and Things like that, and 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 starting more homes for orphans, and that kind of thing. Not because she's going to uh, stop people dying in Calcutta. Not because she's going to stop parents from throwing babies on garbage heaps. This is where one of her main sources of babies. She get, picks them up off of the garbage heap. She's not going to stop that. She is obviously not trying to stop that. She, otherwise, she would go 
make a worldwide campaign of this. Try to eliminate garbage heaps. This is the way the ego's way of doing it, you see. <laughs> That's the cause of it. But she is interested in the person. She knows this person's not dying, but the person thinks that he or she is dying. The person's terrified that he or she is dying because the person is identified so intensely with the body, and the body is dying. And the person says, thinks this is annihilation. Or in India, possibly it isn't that uh, belief that the person doesn't believe that they're actually dying, but maybe they believe that they must die in great pain and great agony. And so they've let themselves get in a particular state that they cannot raise themselves from. I must suffer as I die. This will make progress. And Mother Teresa, a Catholic, which has put, the Catholic Church has put a lot of emphasis on suffering, picks up the person so that they don't suffer, so that their death will be easy and will be gentle. And then she uses the term sacrifice in a way that is truly inspiring. Meaning sacrifice as the ego sees it. It seems like a sacrifice for us to be a servant. It seems like a sacrifice for us to give in to our spouse and to, and to stop the tally as to who is doing more for the other person. To just junk the tally and the list and just be a servant. Of course, doesn't mean that you say yes to everything that someone else's ego wishes. You see what will truly make them happy. And if they are asking for something that you know in your heart will not make them happy, of course you don't consent or go along with it. Nor do you make it an issue in a war. You walk gently around it and continue your servanthood. A question concerning how to let go and let God. It's the simplest thing in the world, and if there's any point in books being written and talks being given, it is to point out over and over that all of this is so simple, we cannot believe it's this simple. And that is the main handicap that we have. That is the main obstacle. We do not believe it can be as simple as it is. So, for example, as I said last time, the way to turn something over to God is to simply turn it over to God. There's nothing more to it than that. So you find yourself <laughs> wrestling with something. It concerns the future. It is not a question, how, what might I do next time? Now, this is extremely helpful. You've just had a blow up with your friend. It is helpful to ask, what can I try next time so that to avoid this? This is quite different than going back and getting depressed over what happened and using it as evidence that you're not learning and you're not making progress. And for you, this is hopeless. That is of no good to go over and analyze. It's no good for two people to talk about their relationship, how much progress they're making in all this business, raking over it and over it and analyzing it and judging it and trying to see how far along we are. This is all ego nonsense. But suddenly they discover that there's a little pattern. I told you about that Gail and I discovered one when one of us would come home. There was often a, an unhappy period there. And the thing that we tried that solved the problem was 
we tried taking a few moments to greet each other instead of reminding the other person of something that had to be done. Because this is what we generally were doing as we walked in the door. There was something on our mind. And so we would tell the other person, have you done this or da, 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 da. And so there was no greeting. There was no time together. Now, of course, greeting can become a fetish. And this can just become awful because you have some greeting ritual. So, of course, that's not, you know, this, you don't do that. The ego always wants to translate everything into form. But the simple solution was we looked at a problem. We said, what could we try? It doesn't matter whether what you try works. It probably won't work. And so you just say, oh, that didn't work. We'll try something else. Now, your ego does not want you to do that. Your ego wants you to dwell on what happened and use it as evidence and go over it and over it and over it. Likewise, your ego wants you to project every possible conceivable problem that may befall you into the future and to go over and over that. Turning it over to God simply means that when you find yourself thinking about anything that's going to happen in the future, you simply say, I put that in your hands, Father. Or any other words, it doesn't matter what the words are. Father is a word that means a great deal to many people and it, and it brings a great stillness to the heart. But it may not be a word that you would use. Your friend, your guide, you have a sense of someone with you. There is literally someone with you who is seeing you through all of this. And that is the one to whom you turn it over. Don't try to figure out uh, what this one with you looks like or I'll see the ego always goes to farm well wonder what the person who's with me's name is and uh, so forth <laughs> and so some people say well I've got a disciple who walks beside me who do you have <laughs> no. well I have Mary Magdalene <laughs> all right it does not this matters this is all farm the the help comes in a farm that we can receive so that when uh, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross did her studies about, she was very interested because she, uh, of course, all the uh, deathbed observation studies had been done up, up to the time that Raymond Moody and Elizabeth Kubler-Ross started all this uh, business of, of people being resuscitated, uh, studying what happens when people die and they're resuscitated. The deathbed observations that had been going on by the uh, American Society for Psychical Research and the, and the British Society, been going on for years and years and years, they had known that, pe that someone comes into the room very often when someone's dying. They will see someone in the room and they are not hallucinating because they can carry on a conversation and ask for a drink of water and do everything and then still there's the person in the room and the person who's dying sees the person in the room. And it's very often a, a relative that was very much loved or, or a friend who, who, had, who had died before this individual. And this was just a universal thing that happened all over the world and it's been recorded for years. Of course, it was confirmed by uh, Raymond Moody and Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's uh, studies. But she got fascinated as to what happened with children, because no one, many times the child, not, no one had died in the child's life. So who would come? And then she found that the person who would come would be someone who would be very meaningful to the child. For example. Uh, to a Catholic uh, child, it might be Mary who would come, walk in the room. To a child that uh, had not had any religious background, it may be some wonderful character in a children's book that was very real. 
I think I've told you that that uh, uh, one of the things that Jerry discovered very early in working <coughs> with children was that they got the most wonderful advice from their teddy bears and that he was convinced that the Holy Spirit talked through teddy bears because they just would have these wonderful conversations. The help comes in a form that is meaningful to us. Now, when we say that, then the ego says, well, it's not real. The person who's with me is not real because the farm has just come. The farm is the farm that's personal to me and helpful to me. It is more real than any farm. This is your best friend. This is the person you talked to before you started this little life. And it's the person you will talk to after you finish this little life. And they will review it all with you. And it doesn't matter what the farm is. This is your best friend, your only friend. That's the person to whom you should give it. Call it by any name. Call it by some broad name, if you wish. But we must have this personal sense of God because we believe we're personal. And so use any mental trick you need to to turn it over. If you want to do a little imagery in which you bodily hand it over, then use the imagery. But your ego will come in and say, this says this makes no sense to turn something over. It has no logic. And in the world, it has no logic. What possible logic would it have to turn something over to something you cannot see? So it, don't look for worldly logic. Just start doing it. Every time you find yourself worrying about anything, turn it over to God right there on the spot. Make this a mental habit. It will take a tremendous load. You will have a lightness that you cannot believe as you begin doing this. Is something going on in the relationship? Is there a bad thing going on in the relationship? Turn it over to God. Now, the ego doesn't like that. There's no analysis. You, you can't pull your hair and gnash your teeth and you can't call up your friends and talk about this. Who would call up the friends and say, well, I, I turned it over to God. <laughs> We call our friends and tell them that we didn't turn it over to God. That's what we're doing. And then they, they suggest 20 ways to continue not turning it over to God. <laughs> How do you trust God? It's, it, it, we have to... It, we, uh, you, you do not begin with faith. You begin with trying. This is something else that's often misunderstood. So people wait around to be zapped with faith and trust. And of course that never happens. You must begin with what will seem to you to be a crazy effort. An insane effort. You will be very suspicious of yourself. And you will think you're getting sucked into something. Mm -hmm. And your parents will tell you it's a new cult. <laughs> <laughs> so you just don't talk to your parents about it. Uh, or if you are your children, they'll tell you the same thing. <laughs> I know that one from experience. So. <laughs> uh, so you begin with doing it. And then the trust follows. You begin with willingness. Willingness simply means I will act. I will try. I will try something. 
Don't try to try something perfect. Don't try to figure out what to try. Try anything and it will work to some degree. Try anything to go beyond whatever problem is in your life right now. Try anything overt, anything external, and it will begin to dissolve the problem because you have sided with your true will by trying something. It makes no difference what you try. And affirmations are a good thing to try. If you realize that an affirmation on that level is the same thing as an aspirin, is the same thing as going to a counselor, is the same thing as reading a book, is the same thing as standing on your head. So you just try it. It can be a tool. And then the trust will follow. Start talking to your best friend as if your best friend was there holding your hand. Have an imaginary playmate and start talking to your playmate and asking your playmate advice. Don't listen for uh, certain words coming back as confirmation. Just do it. Just say, now what should I do about here? Just start this sort of insane babbling to yourself. <laughs> well, here I am. Uh, I'm late for the appointment and there are six bodies lined across the highway. Should I drive over them? <laughs> Whatever the thing is. You just start talking, you see. You just talk. You just sort of babble to yourself. But you're babbling to your best friend. You see. And then you kind of pause and you're still. And you, if, you don't, if you want to answer, just feel something. Remember, like the, the force, you know. <laughs> Except the force will not tell you how to destroy anything. Uh, but... Uh, just, you just wait and you'll feel this something. You just do it. Now, don't put a lot of emphasis on what you felt because the, the ego, higher ego, is going to be looking at this to see if it worked in its terms, do you see? So did it save you money or did it save you time or did it do all that stuff? And that, of course, isn't the purpose of it. So you feel something. You feel a little gentle something. You just do it. <coughs> and then you go back and babble to your best friend again. This is a wonderful thing to start this dialogue with your best friend. It's a wonderful thing to do this. Just start talking to your best friend. Just assume that your best friend sits on the car seat beside you. Assume that your best friend sits on the bed beside you when you wake up in the morning. Anything that's on your mind, turn it over to your best friend. And if you need to act, then rely on this peaceful preference. This sort of feeling of, oh, this is the way to go. Here's where the open door is. And then if it doesn't seem to work, you go back to your friend and you try another door. You can get around any problem that way. A question concerning how to let go and let God in the business world. How to fire an employee and remain peaceful. So let, let, me, let me answer that. Because that's why we have the Awa after Pip. <laughs> <laughs> and this is very important. You fire the person with assurance. It's pip awa. And so, what pip means pause in peace, awa means act with assurance. So you pause in peace, then act with assurance. So, there's two things. First, you become crazy and you start babbling to your best friend. You put everything in your best friend's hand, just as if you really had a best friend there. You don't really believe it, but you just start acting that way. Now, you begin to have a sense of what your friend is telling you. Don't worry in what way you have this sense, whether it comes through words or it comes through whatever it comes through. It doesn't matter. For most people, it's a sort of a, ah, this is the way to do it. It's sort of a, 
opening kind of thing, or leaning, or something. Intuition. Doesn't matter how it comes, but you take that as the word of God, and you act on it as if God, and you know, in the movies, and the clouds open, and there's light, and all that carny stuff, and the music, and everything, and this is God. All right. Now, as if that happened, the clouds part, there's rainbows everywhere, and God says, Throw it! And you say, Yes, sir! Go fire. The trick to most human relationships when we have to say no, and people on a spiritual path do not say no often enough to the broader realm of their. Uh, contacts and say no much too often to the close realm of their contacts. But in the broader realm of your contacts, there is occasion for much no saying. (laughs) And what you do is you have a sense. Now, you acknowledge the sense. If you need some little mental trick to do this, then I've given you ones here before. If you want to try these, close your eyes, see a stoplight. Uh, green for yes, red for no. Uh, this, this, uh, don't worry about how it comes. You may have a certain little sensation for yes or something. Don't worry about what it is. Take whatever it seems to be the way the answer is coming to you at the moment. Don't make it too complicated. Don't go running around talking about guidance to everybody. But just look at it and say and then act on it as if God had parted the clouds and told you to do this. It is not our uh, saying no that makes people unhappy and makes us unhappy. It is the fact that we're conflicted when we say no. Now they pick this up that we're not sure, we're not feeling right about this and this causes all the turmoil. If you sit down and say I must let this person go. And you're very clear on that. And there is no conflict. Now, you may have started because you think this is what your best friend has told you to do. That's sufficient. And say, I think this is what my best friend... Don't say, do I know my best friend has told me to do this? Because you can't answer that question. Just say, I think this is what my best friend has told me to do. And so you see that and you say, and you get very clear... And then you go it. You do it kindly. You do it softly. You do it gently. You do it with love. But you do it unequivocally. You do it quickly and you do it easily. That's what awa means. Act with assurance. You just do it. You just And it's surprising that uh, nine out of ten times it will go much more smoothly than you thought it was would. But because you live in the world, and the nature of the dream is already set up, there will be that tenth time that it doesn't go so smoothly, and you must realize this is the nature of the world. You will be stoned occasionally. And so you just say, oh, I'm being stoned. (laughs) And uh, you walk away from it. You don't sit there. It's not kind to, to acknowledge it or to argue with it or anything else. You just say, I'm being stoned. And you walk away. It's like Jesus did. You just walk away. Oh, they're trying to push me over the cliff. You just walk away from it. Okay, I'm sorry. These were just awfully long answers. Uh, and we've, uh, we've run out of time. And um, 
So I would like for us to close with a meditation, if we could. So if you close your eyes and see how small your little body is, this little bitty body, this little teeny, teeny body, put little teeny clothes on it every morning. <laughs> this little body, it's so important, it's so important, we make it so important, this little body. Please see that that little body is rocked in God's arms. Your best friend is God. God holds you in his arms. And God rocks you to sleep at night. And God places his hand on your forehead so your rest will be peaceful and God breathes his joy into you when you wake in the morning and God literally goes before you <coughs> laying a path like foam rubber all over, over all the rocks he does not disturb a single rock he puts foam rubber on it so you can walk through the day. Whatever the day may be, you can walk through it in peace. Because your friend goes before you and, and says, You have nothing to fear. I hold your hand. My arms are around you. You have heard my call. You are coming home. I am running to greet you. I'm carrying you there myself. There is nothing for you to do, my child.